today we will finish off the last half thirty-five. And then once you found us, if you don't mind standing for the reading of God's word, I appreciate it. I'll begin just with one verse. We'll backtrack to last week and pick up this verse, verse eight. And Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. She was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he, Jacob, called his name Alon Bakuth, the oak of weeping. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to have the freedom to gather in this place. Thank you for your word being in our language that we can understand. Thank you for a church where believers can think about what you said. We will become to not depend upon human effort, but solely upon the power and person of your spirit, asking that in mercy you would work in our hearts and lives, that you would take your eternal word, that you would do only what you can do to transform us. We pray that all is done for your glory, that as a result of what is said and what you do in our lives, that we would grow in faith, hope, and love. Would you do this so that you might receive all the honor and that we might benefit and be edified? We pray these things in the name of the one you raised from the dead, your son. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So I came across a story this week from last weekend to NPR. Story was reported uh, last weekend. Uh, Andre and his wife Jordan Anchando were preparing for a family barbecue. Uh, this was supposed to be a day of celebration for them because they had three events that they were celebrating uh, in their lives. Uh, first of all, Andre had finally finished their house that he had been working on, so that home was finished. And in addition to that, they were celebrating their one-year anniversary of marriage. And uh, lastly, uh, they were celebrating their daughter's sixth birthday. Uh, Jordan had, when in their relationship coming to their marriage, she had two previous children from a previous relationship. So she had come to the marriage with those two, and Andre had just adopted them in, and they had a little two-month-old together. And so they were celebrating this event, or they were going to celebrate. In order to get ready for that, they uh, were decided to head out to Walmart that morning uh, to get up, to pick up some remaining supplies that they need for the barbecue and they need to get some school supplies for the kids. Uh, school is quickly approaching us and uh, when they got there, unfortunately their plans were shattered, uh, as you probably know. Uh, just about 10.40 a.m. in the morning, a gentleman by the name of Patrick Crucius, uh, who was a native of Allen, Texas, had been living in the area of Plano and attended school, had driven out and uh, that day decided to um, change people's lives forever. Uh, in the sense that he was in their lives. So he opened fire. Uh, he killed uh, Andre and his wife, Jordan, uh, along with 20 other people. Uh, when they found Andre, of course, he, he died as he was shielding his wife from the gunfire. And she was under him, shielding their two-month-old Paul from the gunfire. And she died shielding that baby. And the baby, thankfully, by God's grace, uh, was only grazed by one of the bullets because the bullets of their bodies were shielding and protecting that young child. We live in an awful world. To make things worse, we found out just the next day, less than 24 hours later in Dayton, Ohio, uh, there was a, a club called Ned's Club, 
and uh, Ned's nightclub there, uh, there was a young man in there uh, who was 24 years old, uh, Connor Betts, and he had gone in with his sister and a friend, and they went into the nightclub, and unbeknownst to his sister and friend who he had arrived with, that he had other plans. Uh, and later that night, after being in the club for about an hour, you looked at the video footage, he talked to the attendant and headed out, so he put on a helmet and a bulletproof gear, and headed back in and began to shoot people claiming nine lives, one being the wife of his own sister. Uh, one of his friends, of course, uh, injured as well as he was shot, but he survived. And then these events uh, just remind us that the world that we live in is sad, it's tragic, but the reality is our world is broken. Uh, it, is a, it is a broken place to live because sin and death are running rampant. Uh, in some way, probably all of us, our lives have been touched by sin and death in one way or another. And today I simply want to raise two thoughts and then make a recommendation in light of what the text tells us today. First thought that I want to raise is simply this, that everyone is negatively affected by the brokenness of our world. Everyone is negatively affected by the brokenness of our world. Yes, even people who are in a good relationship with God are still affected. Sin and death find their way to sink their claws into each of our lives, whether we want it or not. The truth is, no one is exempt. When we look at Jacob's life, we find the same thing is true of his life. Let me show that to you in the text. I'll pick back up at verse 8 to read it to you again, and then we'll pick up a few other verses here from the text. Verse 8, And Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak at Bethel, below Bethel. So he called his name along the coup of the oak of weeping. Please drop down to verse 16 with me. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name, then Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephraim, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb, is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. And then if you will, drop down with me to the final verses of the text here, verse 27. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. I'm sure that you know that there was a common theme throughout the different passages that I read from our text today, that in Jacob's family that there were three funerals that had to be held. first funeral was from a longtime family member. Uh, we were introduced to her back in Genesis chapter 24 when uh, Abraham had sent his servant to get a wife for Isaac. And when the wife came, Rebecca, uh, her nurse was sent with her. We weren't told her name at that point. We were just introduced to the fact that she had come. We may have just read over that, but she was present in their life. And she went with Rebecca to care for her while she was still young. And most likely, by being there and performing that job, when Rebecca had children, Jacob and Esau, she probably cared for them as well. And it seems like that at some point, Rebecca has died and moved on to the next world, and Deborah has left Isaac's encampment and joined Jacob's encampment, and thus she's traveling with him. 
So most likely for him, if we could just put it in a modern day context, it would kind of probably be like for him losing his grandmother. Someone who had been a long part of his life, who had cared for his mother, and had most likely cared for him and his brother. And that's one loss. Just after he has one loss, as he's traveling, leaving that, trying to get over the grief from a, a loss of a close family relative and friend in the family, he experiences another loss. Uh, on his way to his next destination, uh, his wife, whom he now found out, surprisingly is pregnant again much later in life. And as she is uh, getting ready to go into labor, we find out that things are not going well in the delivery. There are those who have uh, taken a look at the text, uh, who are, have a medical background, and look at the text in Hebrew, and they came away and they said that might have been evidence most likely while this birth is extremely difficult is because the baby is breached. And the baby's been born breached, and that's why the labor is extremely difficult. And so as a result of that, uh, it, does, it does ultimately claim her life. Now that was much more common in the ancient world than today because of our knowledge and abilities and medical practice. But back during that time, those things were not available. So more often women lost their lives in delivering children. And so this is the case with her. But why this is more significant for Jacob is because of, out of the four women that he's married to, this is the one that he actually loves. This is the one that he spent 14 years of his life working to marry. She's been the motivation that's been driving him. Now suddenly, what should have been a moment of joy has now become a moment of sorrow for him. And he is left to grieve deep emotional pain, the loss of a longtime family member, and now the loss, unexpectedly, of a wife. We find out later in the text that he finally does make it to his destination where his father Isaac is in camp. But his father Isaac has moved, moved from Beersheba up to Hebron, where his dad had lived at the end of his life, where his mother had been buried. And most likely, Isaac had sensed that his time was nearing an end, and he wanted to be where the family tomb was. So he had changed locations, and Jacob finds him and lives with his father for about 13 years. And then after that, his father dies. And he and his brother get together as we do at funerals, and we put our parents in the grave and there. Isaac was laid to rest next to Abraham and Sarah. Now we have no indication from the text that these things have happened as a result of some heinous sin that Jacob has committed, such that wrath should come upon him. We actually have to believe just the opposite. Jacob has been to Bethel. He has worshipped God. He's in a good place with God. And yet he experiences loss in his life. Why? It's due to the normal stuff of the world. Old age, and unexpected complications in life. Now, God's people, like everyone, lives in a world that's captive to death. That's what this text tells us. We live in the same world as everyone else lives in, and thus we are subject to that world. We're affected by the same things that others are affected by, even though we belong to God. Now, we might ask, why is it that people actually die? The Apostle Paul states it very bluntly in the letter to the Romans, and this is what he writes. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because of all sin. Paul says, let me just be right up front with you. Here's the issue. The problem is that people sin, and as a result of sin, death has come into the world. Now, we throw that word sin around in church. We use it a lot. We talk about it. We talk about it in circles, but sometimes we forget exactly what sin really is. What is it really when I say the word sin? What does the Bible actually mean? Well, let me give you some of the concepts and images that the Bible has when it talks about this idea of sin. One of the words, the first idea of sin that's often used in the Old Testament and translated in the New Testament, 
is really not a religious word at all. It simply has to do with someone who misses something that they're aiming at. Like the Benjamites who would not miss when they were left-handed and they would throw a stone. They would not They would never miss. That is, they would never miss the goal for which they were aiming at. And that's the first idea. It's this idea of missing a goal or standard. And what is that goal or standard? That God has a goal for how we ought to love him and how we ought to love people. And sin is missing us rightly loving God and other people. Sin is also pictured as this idea that we're on a path, a journey. And that we stray off of that path, and that is sin. To wander away from the right path that God has laid out before us. Sin is pictured as, as something that is crooked or perverse or twisted in behavior, like a road that's not straight. It goes through all types of men. And so our lives, where we're living, is twisted or crooked or perverted. We don't keep the straight and right path. In the New Testament, Paul says that sin is lawlessness. That is, that we, have, we know what the law of God is, but we pay no regard to it. We live our lives based on our standards and disregard what God says is a right way to live. And thus, as a result, sin is declared as moral evil. It's moral evil. And it comes out in the forms of rebellion and defiance against the standard that has been laid out before us. I, I'm not going to do that. I refuse to live that way. I'm going to live by what I determine is right for me. Rebellion, defiance. Sin is also pictured uh, in relationships. It's, it's when someone violates a trust in a relationship. That's sin. The Bible Project sums it up well when it says this. It is the deep, selfish impulse that drives much of our behavior. That's what sin is. It's a power in us, driving us away from God toward ourselves. The text goes on to say, not only are we subject to death, but we're also subject because we live in this world to be affected by sin. We'll see this in the text with Jacob's life. Return with me to chapter 35. We'll pick up at verse 21. At the end of 21, the latter part. Uh, of, uh, <clears throat> Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. And while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now we find here that his oldest son commits a what would be considered a detestable act. He slips what, what we might today refer to as one of his stepmothers. Uh, he ends up having relations with her. We're not explicitly given the reason why he does this, but we can surmise in light of other texts in the Bible, as well as other traditions from the ancient world, why this was most likely the matter. This is probably not a matter of lust. Due to the timing of the event and when it happens in the life of Reuben and in light of what's going on in Jacob's family, there are probably other two things that are going on. One, we already know about Reuben that he's protective of his mother. When Reuben was young, Reuben, as the oldest child, sets the dynamic and tension in the family where there was this tension between the different wives vying for Jacob's affection and to be the primary wife in the home, to be in the first position which Rachel had enjoyed for their entire marriage now until her death. Now she's died, and we know that, but that, that Reuben had sought to do that because of the boy he had brought mandrakes to his mother, but now his mother is there, and the wife of his aunt who was competing is now gone. And there's a likelihood that her servant, who had been a kind of surrogate wife, could rise to the position to take first position. And what does Reuben most likely want to do? He wants to keep her from doing that, and how do you do that by defiling her? 
And so it's a strategic move. But it also may be a move as we look at, at some of the other texts when other men had done the same thing in the history of the world, the history of Israel. Uh, it also may be a move to assert his authority as the leader in the family. Now that his father Jacob is much older and he is rising to prominence, it, it was a way of saying, I'm the one to take charge of the family. So this may be the case. In either way, uh, when the Mosaic law comes, it condemns this behavior. And so we see here that Jacob's family is negatively affected by the actions of his son. Sin, although Jacob is right with God and living in a right relationship, he's still affected by the sin of another. And the same is true today. Even though we might be living for God, we might be devoted to God, we might be living a righteous life, it does not mean that we will not be affected by the sin of other people. Uh, so I ran across a story as I was reading and doing some research this week. Uh, it was a announced first on Good Morning America, they talked about it, but they recounted the story from an Australian source because it was an Australian wedding. And it was just about this particular young lady's experience uh, getting married. This young lady that she went by the name of Casey when she wrote the article, and she gave a pseudonym to her former fiance, uh, Alex. And then she was getting ready for the wedding. She was very excited. Uh, it was the day before the wedding. Uh, she was in a hotel room with her bridesmaids. Uh, celebrating this idea. She had gone through the normal feelings of cold feet, uh, and of course she was encouraged by her friends, and that evening, of course, there had been a lot of text messages she, she had received from family members and friends, just wishing her well. Hey, we're excited about the marriage, we hope things go well for you guys, and she had just received text and text and text. So she was celebrating that. She was in the process of celebrating uh, that evening. She received a text, another text message ding. Her phone alerted her, you have another text message. And of course, she didn't think much about it at first because she had been receiving messages all day long. People just saying great things to her. But this message was different because it was followed immediately by two more alerts. Ding, ding, ding. She then got curious and went over to the phone and picked it up. And she recognized, first of all, that this was not from a number that she knew. It was an anonymous number. So she opened it up and started to look at the messages. Her heart dropped when she found out the content of the messages. There were pictures of her fiancé with another woman at different places. And she got past the pictures and she started to read down. These were copies of the messages that they had been interacting with, her fiancé and this other woman, and all the explicit content. She looked at the dates of all the messages that had been sent to her, and they had dated back from months ago all the way up until just the day she was broken, her heart saddened. She broke down into tears, felt great shame as she contemplated. She said, what do I do now? All the guests have been invited. They traveled here for this wedding. What do I do in light of this? So she thought that she was sleeping on it that night. But as you can probably guess, she said that she could not sleep at all in light of that circumstance. And we can understand that. In light of that, you expect it to to marry someone just to find out they're not the person that you thought they were. She was deeply grieving, so all night long she tossed and turned over what she should do. The next morning she got up and she decided she was going to the wedding. So she got dressed, she put on a gown, and she headed out, and the ceremony proceeded as normal. The procession went on and she made her way down the aisle as the last person in the procession as all of the onlookers waited to see this couple be joined together. But she changed things when she got up to the front in front of the minister. She turned around and she faced the audience. 
And to everyone's surprise, she started to make an announcement. She said, I'm sorry, but today we're not going to be having a wedding because the person that's standing next to me is not the person that I thought that he was. And then afterwards, where she, we, we went to the room didn't know and no one else knew was that she had had her cell phone with her in her flowers. She then began to read the text with every colorful detail to the audience. You can imagine the gasps that were in the audience as she went through. After she had got pretty far into the reading of the text and some of them, the groom, of course, who was shaken and not clear about what he should do, uh, stormed out of the church when he realized she was not going to stop reading them out of sheer embarrassment. Uh, the best man, not knowing what to do, soon followed right after him. Uh, and then after that, some people didn't know how to respond, what to do. And finally, some people started to clap. Uh, and then she said after that, hey, listen, I know things have not gone the way we wanted, but we're still going to have a reception. And she said, but today let's make it a party about honesty. And so that's how she ended up ending her time together with him. And it just reminds us of the fact that we live in a world that, that is broken, and when others sin, we're affected negatively by their sin. Now, what's interesting about her response is this. It reminds us of, of, of our normal human responses when they're not under the Spirit. When someone else causes great pain to us, our natural instinct is to cause them pain in return. And thus, what happens in our world is we see this, this cycle where things just spiral down and down and down, circling the drain of depravity. But thankfully, this is not the only thing going on in our world, sin and death. There's good news, which brings me to the second thought. The world is broken, yes, and we live in a world and we're affected by the brokenness of this world, but God is also at work in the world, making, working to make things right. Let me go back to the text, Genesis chapter 35, verse 22. We'll pick up there. Well, uh, right the last part of that. Now, the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born in Padan Aram, of course, with the exception of Benjamin. But now with the, the birth of Benjamin, the first time, we have officially the listing of all 12 tribes that will comprise the nation. In one way, we can look at it as this is the conception of the nation in full. First time in the book of Genesis that we see this, the whole playing out. But what we realize by looking at this genealogy, by this listing, is that God is taking another step forward in accomplishing his plan. And there are two things that remind us of this. One, we have the promises of God, which we reviewed week after week. Remember Genesis 12, 15, and 17, God first started off by selecting a man named Abraham out of all the peoples of the earth to start a relationship with him. And he promised this man that he would multiply him, take his descendants, and form them into a nation. And through that specific nation, he would bring blessings to all the families of the earth. When that man's time was coming to an end, he then moved on to extend that promise to his son Isaac, the one that God had so graciously given to him. Not by natural means, but by supernatural means. And in Genesis 26, we see that God extends the promise to him. And then he has two sons, and God selects one of those sons, who is Jacob. And he then extends to him and grace the same promise in Genesis 28 and Genesis 35, that he will do the same things with him. And then he renames him Israel and gives him a new name. 
Secondly, the second thing that reminds us of this is the provision of God. Genesis 29 and 30. When we look back at how the babies came to be, we realize that it was God's work in the women's lives that gave them the gift of fertility. And through them, they bore the sons that became the fountainheads of the twelve tribes of Israel who became that nation. This was thus another step for God to move forward to fulfilling his promises that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob on his way to do what he had promised Adam, rescue humanity. So in Genesis 35, this text of naming all the twelve tribes reminds us that God's purpose is still moving forward despite sin and death in the world. God will still accomplish his purpose. But we're reminded by looking at this that God often accomplishes his purpose in the stage of the world over a period of time. It doesn't all happen at once. And when we look at the narrative of Scripture, we see God moving forward with the same plan, that God is faithful. Abraham dies. Isaac dies. Jacob, as we'll learn later in the book of Genesis, will die as well. But God continues to work out his plan that he had promised over history. We see that in Genesis 15, God had told Abraham that there would be certain things that would happen in the lives of his descendants. He said that they would go into a land, a nation that was not their own, but he would deliver them and form them as a nation. We see that in the book of Exodus, where God forms the nation and then delivers them and then makes a covenant with them. And then God does exactly what he told Abraham. He brings them back to the land through the conquest of Joshua. When they come back into the land, God then seeks to rule over them through judges. And they often have to be delivered time and time again because there's always this on-again, off-again relationship with God. And so God finally gives them what they request, a king. And God gives them kings and gives them prophets. And through the prophets, God's promise to them is that one day there will be a true king who will come from Israel, who will rule not just Israel, but the entire world. All nations will be subject to him. And this king will finally do what no other government leader has been able to do. He will bring true world peace. In addition to that, the promise also, the, God also promised to the prophets that one day he would send a great servant who would be faithful to him like no other human being has, has done. And as a result of that, he would deal with sin and death. And in light of all those promises while God was working, the people continued to rebel against God despite all of his great promises to them. And so then he sent them as part of the covenant because they had made an agreement about what would be the punishment if they broke the covenant. He sent them into exile. But God, because of his faithfulness to the people, he didn't leave them in exile. But because of his love for them, because of his great faithfulness, he called them back and brought them back to the land. And then after a period of silence, God sent a prophet. His name was John. And John proclaimed the coming of that great king, that he had come to finally do what God had long promised. And what was surprising about this, not only was he going to be the great king, but he also would fulfill the role of that great servant who would be faithful to God and deal with sin and death. We know his name to be Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do is right now is take time to show you how Jesus fulfills all those things, how he dealt with sin and death and kept the promises to Abraham and dealt with the brokenness of our world. Let me show you what the scriptures say about Jesus just to remind you. First of all, the scriptures tell us that Jesus didn't come on his own, but he was sent by God into the world. Very familiar passage of scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God sent Jesus to save the world. How did Jesus do that? Well, Jesus dealt with sin, first of all. Jesus deals with our sins through his death on the cross. Just what we sang today. 
Listen to what the apostle says. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Christ dealt with our sin debt by putting it to death on the cross. Not only did Jesus deal with sin, which is breaking our world, but he also dealt with that great enemy that no human being has ever been able to conquer, death. He did it through the power of resurrection life, and now he offers that life to all who would come to faith in him. Notice what the text says. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by, the, by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only human being who has overcome and dealt with our great enemy, death. Not only has Jesus dealt with sin, not only has he dealt with death, but he has also done exactly what God has promised. He has brought blessing to all of us, the nations, those who are not uh, Abraham's biological descendants. Paul writes this to, this to the church at Galatia. He says to them, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentile, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The spirit, the blessing that was promised to Abraham that comes to us is the spirit of God. That's what it's pictured here as. That is that we who are not the descendants of Abraham could enter into the same type of relationship that Abraham had with God. That we could be in right relationship with the creator God because only what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. Not only did Jesus deal with sin, has Jesus dealt with death, not only has Jesus brought us a blessing that was once only that to the descendants of Abraham, but Jesus will also return to set the world right. He will deal with the problems and make the world as it should be. We see this when he talks to his disciples and they ask him about his coming. He says this to them. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. See, what the text tells us is that God is actively working in the world to set things right. He has made the decisive victory through the work of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. That is the victory that has determined the outcome of the battle with the forces of evil as well as with the world of sin and death. As we've seen with the family of Israel, God's plan often takes time to work out on the stage of history. It doesn't always get fully realized in one moment. So the victory has been won, and yet the world is not fully subject to Christ, but it will be at his coming. And so right now what God is doing is calling all people to repent, to turn from their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ so that your problem of sin can be dealt with. And in dealing with your problem of sin, Christ might grant to you and give to you life through the power and empowering presence of God. And it's in light of these two realities that I want to make one recommendation to us, and that's simply this. In light of the fact that our world is broken, 
and that God is actively in the world working to make it right. If you are a believer today, partner with God. Partner with God. How can we partner with God? Let me offer to you a few suggestions. There are many more, but for the sake of time, I won't go into all those. But here are three suggestions. One, in your personal life, be committed to holy living. Be committed to holy living. The Apostle Peter puts it this way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Notice why. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. There is an expectation that when you come into a relationship with God, when your sins are forgiven and you're given the presence of and the gift of the Spirit, that there will be a change in your life. That's what the gift was. That's what the whole new covenant was about. That God will give us his spirit, write his laws upon our heart, so that we might do what Israel had failed to do. Obey God. Do what it is that God was asking of you men. It's not by our own power, but by the leading and empowerment of the spirit. You know what the benefit of that is? When people live lives under God's influence and rule, it reduces the amount of sin in the world. That's what happens when we live holy and righteous lives. People don't have to be negatively impacted by our sinful choices. And the great news is we're not left alone. It is not through our strength, but by the strength of the Spirit. Second thing, be committed to showing compassion and love. Be committed to showing compassion and love. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Uh, as one of the college students said last night, the mark that distinguishes us of Jesus' disciples is biblical love. It's how we care for one another. See, it ought to be true that when we go out into the world and we talk about what the kingdom of God is and invite people to be part of what God is doing and cause them to, to depend upon what God has done in Jesus Christ, when they say, well, what does this look like? What does this life under God look like? Where, where can I go and look at this at? You ought to be able to say, go to the local church. There you will see a group of people who are living out what it means to be under God's rule. And what you will see is a community of love. That's what a church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a window, a picture of what God's kingdom is going to look like on earth. But that only happens when we truly seek to live lives of love and compassion. Lastly, as I often say, and I repeat this theme often, but I still will repeat it again. Be committed to prayer for other people and for their arrival in God's kingdom. One of the scriptures command us repeatedly to pray for others. Pray for those who are in leadership, to pray for other believers. And then the scripture by Christ's own command commands us that when we pray, one of the things that we ought to pray for is that God's rule will take place on earth just as it is in heaven. That earth will start to resemble and look like what heaven looks like, where it's a place of love and obedience, and it is a place that is under God's rule. Why is it that believers in every age urge us, as you walk through the, the ages of the church history, and you read those who are writing to the church, they continue to urge us to pray? Because there's this reality that they know, that God is the only one who has the authority, the knowledge, the wisdom, and the power to change the world, to make it right. And thus we must plead with him to get involved and to act so that our world might change from what it is and what he's doing. So, what do I say to you? Partner with God. I read an interesting story this week to close out with. 
I thought it was a good way of looking and illustrating what it means to partner with God. It comes from the south side of Chicago. There's a church there by the name of Living Hope. Um, that uh, Pastor, uh, Pastor Brad Byer. Uh, and at this particular point in the life of the church, um, they had decided to purchase an old school hall to renovate it to use for the church facilities. Uh, it was a large project that they wanted to do, and so they started to work on the project and, and uh, to try to, to get things changed out. Well, as the church was working and people were uh, noticing that there were workers there, uh, because in that specific community that at that time, the unemployment rate was pretty high. It was 23%. So a lot of people were coming by the church, because people know the church to be a place of compassion, came by and was asking for aid to give us money. Uh, and then there was, a, at night, there were a string of burglaries and robberies uh, where people were stealing the tools to sell them and stealing some of the fixtures and things that had been put there to, to install, to change the, the face of the building, and people were stealing that stuff. And it was interesting, the church's response to this uh, event. The church decided to reach out. What the church did was they went into the community and they just started to hire people. They ended up hiring 50 people to help with the building uh, of the building to renovate the, the space. What they did is they started to train them. They used it as a job training opportunity to give people skills that they did not have and be able to make them employable. Uh, and as a result of that, it began to change the community that they were in. Pastor Brian said this. He says, our primary way of trying to help those who are those without hurting those in need was to invite anyone who came looking for help to learn new skills or to put their existing experience to work in this old building. Along the way, we realized that completing a day's work together seemed to release a shared God-instilled purpose and create a natural context for forming relationships. It was interesting that as they started giving paychecks out, started giving people purpose in their daily lives, and work, how to open up the door to see what Christianity was about and form his relationships and cause people's lives to repurpose and then to then the stealing and stuff went down. I thought that was a wonderful thing. They ended up employing, uh, helping at least 76 people find jobs as a result of the work. See, look, our world is broken. But the reality is that God is in this broken world with us working to make things right. That's going to be fully realized one day. But in the meantime, we have the opportunity to partner with him. Will you partner with God? Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. May we consider our lives in light of what you've done decisively through Jesus Christ and what you're doing by your spirit in the world as you call people into relationship with him. I pray, Father, that you would help us to see how to redeem those things around us in ways that are consistent with who you are. That we show love and compassion, that we might be pictures of the grace that we have received through Christ. That we might tell them about Jesus. That we might see and show them how they ought to live as those who are under God's rule. What a human shepherd. Because we've come into relationship with might you give us insight, creativity, to see how we do that. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Would you please stand? We'll sing our final song. We'll dismiss you.